This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The Colorado State Patrol searches far fewer drivers during traffic stops now than it did before recreational marijuana was legal. That's according to a recent study by Stanford University. And while Hispanic and Black drivers were historically more likely to be searched than whites, the gap is growing. We're going to explore what's happening with reporter Justin George of The Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization that specializes in criminal justice. George recently wrote about the study's findings. He joins us from Washington, D.C., where he's based. And Justin George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You reported on data from Stanford University that looked at how often the Colorado State Patrol stopped vehicles and then went on to search them. The data compared searches before marijuana was legalized and after. And um, what did you hope to understand by focusing on these searches? We just wanted to see what kind of effect uh, essentially legalizing marijuana has had on states such as Colorado and Washington to see if that influenced at all uh, how many times drivers are searched. Did you have a hypothesis? No, we did not at all. This is, in fact, the first time this sort of data has been available. There has been information out there, including done by the Colorado Department of Public Safety, about how many arrests um, have occurred, marijuana arrests, marijuana-related arrests have occurred um, pre-legalization and post-legalization. But this is the first time traffic stop data has been available. And in Colorado, the legal standard for searches that often come into play with pot cases is whether the officer has a reasonable suspicion of a crime. When marijuana was illegal, the smell of pot could constitute a reasonable suspicion and trigger a search. Today, that's a much harder standard to meet. According to the study, how much were searches down overall in Colorado after pot became legal? Sure. Overall, they were down between like 50 and 60 percent, broken down by race and ethnicity. Um, African-Americans were searched uh, 51, more than 51 percent less um, after uh, African-American drivers, that is, after legalization. Hispanic drivers were searched about 56 percent less. And then white drivers were searched 61 percent less. Mm. We spoke to the Colorado State Patrol about these findings, and they say they're still doing their own study of data from the same period. And they say they're not ready to draw any conclusions about how much searches are down or whether that's tied to the change in the law. And here's Sergeant Rob Madden of the Colorado State Patrol. I think that it is too early to say that marijuana is the cause for a reduction in searches. The data that we are collecting and the time period that we have been collecting the data does not allow us to come back with anything that is a definitive based on one addition or subtraction of state law. In your reporting, what did you hear from experts about why they think these two things, the drop-in searches and pot being legal, might be linked? Sure. Um, Well, you speak to a lot of experts and they talk about a traffic stop and what it represents to police. For one thing, obviously, they're looking for traffic violations. But as one expert put it, it's also sort of like the, the Scrabble triple word score in that there are many infractions that can occur um, just from stopping a driver. There could be something in the car. There could be an illegal weapon. There could be uh, liquor. There could be drugs. Um, these are all things that officers look for. And that's also part of State Patrol's job 
stop to make sure that um, you know the roads are safe, but also what people are transporting um, across across different state borders. Um, they also look for drugs and things like that. So one thing is, if they were uh, suspicious or looking for um, you know any signs that they might think uh, a driver uh, might be showing carrying marijuana or at least uh, smoking marijuana or something like that. Uh, whether uh, those are um, uh, proper inferences or not, uh, that seems to be, you know, a clear reason sort of why these stops have lessened in that they are not looking for those things. Now, you mentioned the likelihood of searches for all ethnic groups actually went down, but the gap between whites and minorities went up. Um, and I wonder, you know, why you think that gap is growing? Right. That that was a baffling thing to everybody, but that sort of represents the problem of racial disparities in law enforcement and in the criminal justice system is that it's something that goes deeper than uh, a law can solve or a bill can solve. Um, you know, prior to legalization, African-Americans and Hispanics who were 21 and older were searched at a rate of 2.4 times that of whites in the same age group. You know, after pot was legalized, African-Americans were searched at a rate 3.4 times and Hispanics 2.7 times that of whites. Um, the disparity grew among all drivers, regardless of age as well. Um, and again, that's it's it's a difficult thing to say uh, when you look at racial disparities. You're talking about uh, possible bias. Um, you know, clearly bias is something uh, that has been involved uh, with law enforcement. Um you know, as far as arrests go and as far as searches go. So, you know, that's something that has to obviously come into play here. Were there other factors besides race that influence whether some drivers are more likely to be searched than others? Yes, uh, their ages, uh, you know, the age of a driver is one thing. And obviously, whether they are in state or out of state, uh, if you are out of state, you are going to face more scrutiny as a driver than you would if you were in state. Why would that be? It could be for a lot of reasons. I mean, again, like just like officers are looking for, um, you know, often for something else besides just a traffic um, stop, they could be looking to see what you're transporting across state lines. And what about the age factor? The younger you were, the more likely you are to be searched. Yeah, I just think that the age factor is just, again, you know, it's difficult for me to explain that, but also just, you know, a bunch of kids in the car might look suspicious to an officer. Um, you know, it could be erratic driving. Again, we don't have the reasons for the stop. Uh, we just have, you know, the numbers that relate to the searches after the stop. The Stanford study also focused on Washington state where voters approved legalization in 2012, and that's the same year as Colorado did. And like Colorado, it found fewer searches and similar racial disparities. What about the states that didn't legalize pot? Yeah, you're seeing uh, pretty steady figures. I mean, you're seeing some large increases or decreases overall, but the disparities remain and, and sort of things are basically kind of steady. And we want to emphasize that the data are only for searches by state police in Colorado. That would be the Colorado State Patrol. Its jurisdiction is mostly interstates, state highways. Would the numbers be any different if we were looking at local police and who they stopped and searched? 
Again, that's hard to tell, but that's something that definitely researchers say yes. Uh, there is completely different policing involved when you're talking about Denver police uh, versus what Colorado State Patrol is doing on the highways. You know, Colorado State Patrol's primary function is to obviously keep the roads safe. Um, and they are looking for traffic infractions. They're looking to clear accidents. They're looking at uh, what possibly things could be transported. They're helping out uh, local jurisdictions on statewide investigations. And then you have Denver PD. Um, you know, the primary, uh, uh, you know, primary thing that they're looking for is crime prevention, deterrence, and also crime response. So they're responding to calls and different things like that. Uh, you know, there may be somebody, a car that they, is rumored to have been, not rumored, but reported to have been in a burglary or a robbery. That could be a reason for their stop. So it's a completely different sort of uh, type of policing that occurs. If there are fewer searches now, is there the possibility that other kinds of drugs or other evidence of crimes is being missed by the state patrol? You know, it's difficult to say. Uh, you know, I, I would just say yes, uh, that's obviously a possibility. Uh, but, you know, again, there's just no data, um, you know, behind that. Traffic stops and searches have led to some very controversial, even deadly encounters between police and civilians. And as more states legalize marijuana, could this mean fewer confrontations? I think that's also something that researchers were certainly um, pointing to. We just had, obviously, um, the uh, trial, uh, the the verdict in the Philando Castile mm-hmm. um, shooting. And that is something that may not, you know, again, that's a different sort of thing there, obviously, where an officer was looking um, for a crime uh, that had occurred and pulled him over, allegedly, for those reasons. But um, the fact that African-American drivers are going to be stopped less, um, that signals that there is the less likelihood of a clash or an interaction taking place there. Um, and, and theoretically, that would keep uh, a lot of uh, African-American drivers safer, uh, safer um, as far as any sort of uh, disputes between police um, and what would occur there. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Justin George is Washington correspondent for The Marshall Project, a nonprofit, nonpartisan news source that focuses on criminal justice. The Marshall Project teamed up with the Center for Investigative Reporting to analyze data from Stanford University on traffic stops and searches nationwide. It's peak season at Rocky Mountain National Park, one of the most visited parks in the country, and it's probably one of the most photographed as well. But it'd be hard to find anyone who captures the park better than Eric Stensland. He goes out late at night or very early in the morning to get the perfect shots of spring flowers, gushing waterfalls, and fleeting moments at sunrise. And Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be here. We'll get some tips from you in a bit, but in addition to your galleries in Colorado and New Mexico, you post images almost every day, sometimes more than once a day on Twitter. They're gorgeous landscapes of mountains, forests, and lakes. And We have a colleague here who calls them her moments of zen in her mm. Twitter feed. Is there a spiritual aspect for you in taking these pictures? Absolutely, yeah. I feel like here in our modern world, we've become so busy and occupied with the goings-on, the things we need to do, that we really lose track of what's happening deep inside of us. And when I moved to the mountains, I 
recognized that in that stillness, I began to connect with something much deeper. I began to realize that there was so much more, even inside of me, inside of all of us, that we almost never touch. And so my photography, I guess, is an attempt to try and mm, help people sense that, help people get in touch with that, and uh, uh, hopefully draw them into the wilderness and into the stillness. Do you always go alone to take these photographs? Does it help with that being able to, you know, capture it and and be able to get those emotions out? Yeah, I think uh, that is really the main reason I took up photography was for that that quiet time alone, the time to think and time to meditate and pray. And uh, if you're busy, if you're there with someone else, your, your focus is always outward and you never can really plunge beneath the surface and uh, recognize what's happening deep inside. And so both for my own well-being as well as for my creativity with the photography, I find that being alone is, is really an essential component of that. And as part of that, you sometimes post notes on the photos, with the photos on Twitter, like, the most stunning beauty often arrives after we've lost hope. And, quote, mountains are things of wonder, breaking the horizon and encouraging us to see possibilities we never thought could exist. And you're working on a book, too, with personal reflections about the park. You've brought a reading for us from the book called Enter the Pain. (laughs) Yes, such an encouraging title, right? (laughs) Just what everyone wants to hear. Yeah, I'm working on this book. It's been in the making for quite a while. But I find that while I'm out there hiking uh, through the wilderness, oftentimes in the middle of the night, uh, my mind is turning and thinking on various things that we don't normally address in our lives. And so I, I then stop on the side of the trail and jot down a few notes. And when I get home, I type them up. And pretty soon I had such a collection, I thought, boy, I should put these into a book. Mm-hmm and to help us all reconnect with the wilderness as well as with our inner selves. And so, yeah, so I've uh, the book should be coming out in October. But let me read you this one section called Enter the Pain, just to give you kind of a taste of it Great. and a sense of what it's like for me out in the wilderness. Long, quiet trails can be places of incredible peace, but just as often they can be places of intense pain. Most of us have hidden wounds that we don't really think about during our daily lives. Our constant activity keeps them from reaching the surface. Perhaps that is one of the reasons we remain so busy, to avoid these places of pain inside us. A long, quiet trail can unmask these wounds like nothing else. Much like a blister in the boot, these sources of internal pain rise to the surface until they begin to scream in our ears, and ignoring them is no longer an option. While our tendency is to avoid the intense discomfort, this pain is actually a call to healing. Our broken relationships, our fears, our hidden wounds need not fester. The pain calls us to pay attention, to lean into our wounds and address them head-on so that healing can flow into these areas. When we discover this, the pain revealed by the trail becomes our friend, and we realize that the path we are on is really the path to wholeness. Mm. Can you give me an example, if it's not too personal, of that pain that you say is revealed to you on these trails and how the trails can be healing? Well, you know, at times, uh, you know, you may have had an argument with someone and, uh, you know, our tendency is just to say, oh, it's their fault. Oh, 
they should have done this. And when I'm out there in the quiet, it just begins to rumble around and you begin to realize your own motivations and you realize, oh, actually I was acting out of fear. It was fear and trying to protect myself. Um, and you begin to say, okay, I need to let lower my defenses. I need to give this person grace. And you begin to find these opportunities to reconnect with people and uh, or situations. It just, we don't have time to really go deep in these things in our busy world. And so being away from it all, being in the beauty of nature, gives us that opportunity to reflect in a way that we just can't do in the middle of a, of a city or in the middle of our busy busy lives. And, and to work things out in your mind so that you can then go back and find resolution. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's no good if it just stays inside. It's got to make its way outside to those relationships and to the rest of life. Let's go on to the thing you probably get asked the most. What uh, tips do you have for getting the kinds of photographs most people only dream about? Yeah, people come into my gallery all the time and say, I went to that exact same spot and my picture looks nothing like yours. It must be Photoshop. And I, what I encourage people to do is realize that it's photography. It's writing with light. And so the light is the most important component and typically, I take all of my pictures within about 15 minutes of sunrise or sunset, because as the sun is at a really low angle, it sort of bends over the earth, and, and it uh, is much more colorful. At the start of the day, it's orange, then goes to sort of yellow, and then uh, goes back to sort of a grayish-blue color. And if you can catch it during those first few moments, it's just magical. And so have good light. And the other thing is be clear about what your subject is. Don't try and photograph everything in one picture. Just decide this is my subject. And then you can possibly build, as you get better, you can build other elements around it to support that subject. And um, are those your favorite times of day, sunrise and sunset? <laughs> my wife laughs. She's, she's going to be laughing now as she hears this because uh, I am not a morning person. Uh, in fact, I, my ideal would be to go to bed at 9 and get up at 9. Uh, but the reality is, as a landscape photographer, you need to be in location, you know, at least half an hour before the sun rises, which in June, you know, is uh, you need to be there by about 5 a.m., ready to go. And oftentimes that's, you know, many miles back from the trailhead. So you could be leaving, you know, at very early hours in the day. And uh, so, no, the hardest part about being a landscape photographer is getting out of bed. We have had a listener in Estes Park who wrote in suggesting that we interview you. And she said you leave the house at 9 p.m. sometimes to get the perfect shot um, at sunrise. Uh, is that the case? Not often, but it does happen. It just depends how far back I need to go. Uh, because the demand on camping is so uh, great in Rocky Mountain National Park, I can only get a few nights of camping in a year, I think seven. Mm -hmm. And so the I'm out all the time. And so the only way to get to some of these places in time for sunrise might be to leave the evening before and just start hiking through the night in order to get there by 5 a.m. How do you discipline yourself to get up at the crack of dawn, sometimes in the cold, and do this? Well, yeah, that's the hard part. But I think it's knowing what I'm... I'm giving up sleep, I'm giving up the warmth of my bed, but I keep in mind the picture of what I'm gaining and what lies ahead at least what I'm hoping will lie ahead. And, you know, if we don't make some of those sacrifices in life, we we never will get those rewards that, that lie ahead for us. And uh, so 
yeah, I just keeping that picture of what the possibility is ahead of me. You have a few books to help people take good photos in the park, and they also reflect on your experiences working here uh, for more than 10 years. We have a link to those books at cprnews.org. We also have a few of your images there. And if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Eric Stensland, who photographs landscapes and wildlife at Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, One of the many photos that wowed me um, was one where you feel like you're up in the sky almost like being in an airplane. There's this layer of clouds with mountains peaking up. And I understand clouds are essential for you in your photography. They are. A lot of people think, oh, it's a blue sky day. It's perfect. Um, But those are the days I go back to bed. Um, I actually like having those from time to time. Uh, But yeah, clouds really convey emotion in an image. Without them, uh, the image feels empty. And so I'm looking for those times when the eastern horizon is clear in the morning, but uh, there are clouds over the mountains because those clouds will reflect the light back down onto the mountains and create this sense of wonder. And the images you're referring to are when we have an inversion where the clouds are pushed down low and they ride in the lower valleys and the mountains peak up above them. And those are really special occasions as well. Uh, So I'm always, I spend a lot of my time just watching weather forecasts and particularly cloud forecasts, trying to guess where the clouds will be uh, so I can be there and be ready uh, to photograph them in in the best possible way. Is there one shot you wanted to get but haven't been able to capture yet? Oh, I've got lots of them. Yeah, there's some I've spent years and years after. You know, I have, if I could paint, it would be so much easier because I have (laughs) these pictures in my head that I I envision. But, you know, the light needs to be just right. The foliage needs to be just right. The clouds have to be in the proper place. Uh, All has to be free of wind. But yeah, I've got some pictures of uh, a couple of remote lakes with wildflowers growing around them and snowy peaks just behind them with puffy clouds. And, you know, they're about 11, 12 miles back from the trailhead. So you can't just go there each morning until the conditions are right. You really have to guess and, and hope. And uh, too often the weather changes. You, you hike out at 1, 2 in the morning to get to these places, and then a cloud bank moves in and blocks it. And you go, okay, i got to come back another day. And, uh, yeah, I, I, there are pictures that I always be aspiring to get. I understand you don't want to share your favorite spots off trail, but what about on trail? Are there places you'd recommend oh. to people headed to the park? Oh, there's so many wonderful places. Yeah. And I'm, I have an agreement with, uh, folks at the park service not to, uh, share where locations are that are off trail in order to preserve them because we now have 4.5 million people visiting the park And uh, some of these delicate, precious areas could easily be hurt. Uh, But yeah, within the park, some of my favorite on-trail locations are places like uh, Lake Nanita, Lake Nakoni. Very few people go there. Uh, Those are on the west side, about 10, 11 miles back. Uh, On the east side, you know, just getting up to places like Sky Pond or even Lake Bierstadt are absolutely incredible, especially at sunrise when uh, that morning light hits the peaks and they glow and reflect on those lakes. It's it's just awe-inspiring. Do you know, I wonder, as you're taking a photograph that you've just captured a great shot? Oh, I do. I'm. You'll oftentimes see me jumping up and down or clapping. Um, <laughs> it, it, 
if it's incredible to the eyes, uh, then you know it's going to be an incredible picture. It, uh, I, I almost always know when I have what I want. And, you know, those times when I get that excited maybe happen twice a year. Uh, but you just keep going again and again in hope of those special moments. When did you first pick up a camera? How long ago? Well, you know, like all of us, I used cameras even as a kid a little bit, but it wasn't until I moved to Colorado in 2004 that I picked up a camera. I realized I needed to get a a job, um, and I was burned out from years uh, doing development work overseas, and I thought if I I get stuck in a cubicle, but that would kill me, I thought I need to do something that will restore my soul and bring some healing to me. I thought, what does that hiking? Well, how can I get paid to hike? And so I decided to become a landscape photographer in 2004 before I even knew how to take a good picture. Um, and that was a, that's a story in its own. There are so many spectacular views in the state, all over the state. Why focus exclusively on the park? Well, one of the main reasons for me was because my family is there. And I knew if I focused all over more broadly that I would uh, be away from home more than I would like to be. And the other component is that we've got four and a half million people visiting the park. And when I started, no one was exclusively focusing on Rocky Mountain National Park. And so I thought, hmm, I think I will try and be the one who will cover every corner of this park, every little lake, every trail, every area. And so I I set that out as my goal, and that's that's what I've done. And it's worked quite well to focus on Rocky Mountain National Park and open a gallery named Images of Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm. Eric, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Eric Stensland, Stensland's website is called Images of Rocky Mountain National Park. See some of his landscapes and get a link to his books and other work at cprnews.org. Now to another summer pastime. When you're not hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park, you may catch a game at Coors Field. Baseball there is as much about the sounds of the game as the action on the field, starting with the players' walk-up songs. Beloved leadoff man Charlie Blackman will represent the Rockies and the National League in tomorrow's MLB All-Star Game. I just want to use your love tonight. My song is Your Love by The Outfield. I don't want to lose your love tonight. Blackman told my colleagues at CPR's Open Air that music motivates him on the field. And I chose it because... It was a really awesome song when I was in college, and that was the first time I started using it, and it worked really well for me in college, so I decided I would just stick with it. And it's kind of become something of an anthem here at Coors Field. How does that feel for you whenever people are singing along as you're walking up? Uh, I think it's great since it's already a classic song. I don't feel like it gets old, and, uh, and it's something that where I feel like the fans can associate me with that song. So when they hear that song, uh, they know what to do. All right, so how else do you use music, like in the training room or in the clubhouse or anything like that? Uh, I use a lot of music for, like, relaxation purposes, uh, like to unwind, soft, slower-type music. Uh, and then I like some pump-up stuff when I'm when lifting weights. 
The Rockies' Charlie Blackman competes in the Home Run Derby tonight at the All-Star Game in Miami. CPR's Open Air talked with several other Rockies about their walk-up music and the role music plays in the clubhouse. Tomorrow, fellow All-Star third baseman Nolan Arenado. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I just want to use your love It's been four years since one of the deadliest days in U.S. firefighting. We're reminded now as wildfires burn in several parts of remote western Colorado. Meanwhile, the blaze in Breckenridge that forced evacuations last week is largely contained. Hotshot crews have helped get it under control. They're elite firefighters who travel around the country in fire season. And 19 hotshots were the victims on June 30, 2013, in the Yarnell Hill Fire near Prescott, Arizona. Here's their final radio traffic. They say their escape route has been cut off and they're deploying their fire shelters to protect themselves. Okay, I'm here with Great Mountain Hot Shots. Their escape route has been cut off. We are preparing a deployment site. We are burning out around ourselves in the brush. And I'll give you a call when we are under the, sh- the shelters. With wildfire season underway in Colorado and across the West, we're going to listen back to our conversation with Fernanda Santos about these men and about wildfire and development in the region. She's the Phoenix bureau chief for The New York Times. Her book, just out in paperback, is called The Fire Line, the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. She spoke with Ryan Warner last year. Fernanda, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I'd like to start, as you do, with the scene after that radio contact stopped. A police officer in a helicopter is the first to spot the fallen firefighters. What does he see? Describe the scene. So uh, that was Eric Tarr. He was on a uh, uh, a helicopter uh, with two other people, and his role was to find these firefighters in the midst of fire and smoke, ashes everywhere. And uh, fire shelters, when deployed, they're like silver bullets. They're they're like aluminum foil, bright silver. And uh, he spotted on an opening in the haze these um, ashen-looking shelters. And um, it took some time for them to find a place where they could actually land safely because it was so hot down there. And once he did, he had about 500 yards to walk to where these shelters were, and uh, pretty sure, pretty soon, he was able to find out that they were all—all all the firefighters were dead. These are fire shelters that the firefighters themselves deploy, and in a way, they're like an insulating um, sleeping bag, I suppose. How hot did it get? The temperature was estimated to be at about 2,000 Fahrenheit. Uh, the fire shelters, they are not, uh, first of all, they are a measure of less resort. Any Anyone who works wildfires knows that um, if you have to deploy your shelter, it means that something went terribly wrong and you found yourself in a situation that you should never find yourself in, which is uh, facing the possibility of a fire hitting you or uh, or you're on the path of an incoming fire and have no way of getting out, no safe route to get you out of there. 
you know, the, the fire shelters are not built to withstand direct flame contact. They start disintegrating after about 300 Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, the human body can only sustain as much heat. So even if the shelters were to survive, the temperature inside the shelters, if it rises up to 300 or more, um, you know, there's no way anyone can survive in there. So in that case, there was really no chance of survivability because the flames, the fire literally rolled over these 19 men as they were in their shelters. Mm. You write essentially that this fire made a U-turn and in some ways caught the crew off guard. How does a fire make a U-turn? Fires are such interesting characters. You know, I have gained such respect and appreciation for the power of a wildfire. And fire and weather together are like the best or the worst uh, co-conspirators. They sort of orchestrate these tricks on firefighters all the time. Uh, anyone who's ever watched a fire or uh, fought a fire knows that uh, a wind gust can change everything. And in this case, the fire was, uh, the flames were heading north. So they passed the town of Yarnell, um, which is where the town, the crew was working and going to a, a small town just north of Yarnell, another small town called People's Valley. And the storm was coming from the opposite direction. It's a monsoon season in Arizona. Um, so we have these powerful storms with uh, gusty winds up to 30, 40, 50 miles an hour sometimes. And the fire and the winds collided. And the wind literally um, from the way, from the direction it was blowing, was able to turn the, the flames first um, to the east and then south uh, just from the sheer force of the wind on the fire and the fact that there was still vegetation that had not burned for the fire to burn. So the fire goes chasing what's there to burn and the wind pushing it in different directions. It found other places that had not burned yet and basically did a U-turn or many people, uh, some people describe me, uh, describe to me, it did a, a horseshoe in the air. And, uh, and it came back towards the direction where the crew was working at that time. So these were hotshot firefighters, these 19. You write that the hotshots were like migrant farm workers chasing harvest time from state to state. Just tell us briefly about hotshots and the, the lives they lead. So, uh, you know, the first thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that um, wildfires are fought very differently than a city fire. You don't have a truck, a hydrant, water in hand to um, uh, fight the flames. Uh, for the most part, firefighters, uh, wildland fi- wildfires are fought with crews that use um, construction tools, as I call them, um, shovels, rakes, pickaxes, chainsaws. And uh, hotshots, there's a hierarchy of these crews. Hotshots are at the top of this hierarchy. They are the best trained, um, the most daring, and also the uh, the ones best uh, who work closest to the flames. So they take on the riskiest, most difficult assignments uh, on a fire. And uh, they, um, you know, in, in the case of the Yarnell Hill fire, they were called uh, on the third day after various different crews had tried to put out the fire and were not able to. Um, and these guys are, and women, uh, there are some women who fight fires too. They are what's known as interagency resource. And what that means is that they can be used by any agency that needs help fighting a wildfire. So it could be Forest Service, 
Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs, state land, uh, whatever kind of ownership or management the land has. And so they travel during the fire season, which generally goes from about mid-April to mid-October, all over the West. Um, in this case, you know, Granite Mountain Hotshots were based in Prescott, Arizona, but they had never fought a fire in Prescott until two weeks before the fire that killed them. Um, in all the years that the crew had been around, it was um, turned into a hotshot crew in 2008. They had traveled, you know, Montana, uh, Colorado, Idaho, everywhere. So they are like in these little buggies, the, these um, uh, Ford F750 um, retrofitted like little school buses. And they sit there and they travel and they ride these beautiful roads and they go to these places that most most of us never get to see. And um sleep on the dirt and uh, might go 14 days without a shower um, or, you know, without a hot meal. But um, but that's the life they li- they live and a life that they really love. They really do enjoy. I've, I've yet to meet a firefighter who does not love the job they do. Yeah. And you dive into who these men were. And that's after spending time with their families. Quoting from the book, I was graciously received and sometimes slept in the homes where these men had grown up. I played with the children they fathered and hugged the women, parents and step parents they left behind. I want to focus on one man in particular, the superintendent of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, a man named Eric Marsh. He was the one who hired many of Uh, the crew members. And there's a detail in your book that caught my attention. In the job interviews, he would ask the prospective firefighter, when was the last time you lied? (laughs) What does that tell us about this man, Eric Marsh? Eric Marsh was such a fascinating character. Eric was a, um, a recovering alcoholic. He had been sober for 13 years when he died. And, um, he had, I assume, and I know for a fact, he'd had to um, lie or hide from others uh, some of the ugly things that anyone who has a substance abuse problem uh, has to do. Um, and so uh, he understood very much two things, that uh, people who stumble and fall are able to pull themselves, pick themselves up and, and carry on and improve themselves and their lives. And he also understood that for, for that to happen, you needed others who believed in you and were willing to give you a second chance. In fact, I call the crew a crew of second chancers because of the fact that um, they had almost as if it were a mission of theirs to find every season one or two people who needed this extra help, who needed this guiding hand, but who had a lot of potential and obviously fit all the physical requirements and so forth that the crew had um, to sort of turn that person into not only a great fireman, as Eric used to say, but a great man. So to him, it was more than just being a, a superintendent, a, a leader to a crew. It was almost like being a, a surrogate father to the, these men. In fact, his nickname was Papa. Um, and it was because he had that sort of disciplinarian attitude mm-hmm. that a father has, but also this, you know, this love in everything he did. Fernanda, as you write, the Forest Service predicts a net loss of up to 37 million acres of forest land to development by 2060. That's an area larger than Pennsylvania. And increasingly, you say, decisions to fight fires aggressively Start with how many homes might burn. Every such decision you write puts wildland firefighters in danger. Um, Are firefighter deaths 
simply a given because people want so badly to live in the forest? I think the way to put it is that it's virtually impossible to avoid death in fighting wildfires because, first of all, it's it's a very dangerous job. Every movement they make, every step they take is a risky movement, a risky step. Death for or serious injury for wildland firefighters can come from driving on treacherous roads and, you know, rolling down an embankment. Um, it can come from a rock that rose downhill as they're working, cutting line down below. It can come from a branch that falls down from a tree. And also, obviously, it can also come from fire, as it did um, on June 30th, 2013, to these 19 firefighters I wrote about. So, you know... Um, the role of development has just intensified those risks because now you have communities, um, people who are going to, you know, screaming on the face of these incident commanders who are the people in charge of the wildland firefighting operations in a certain fire, um, people calling their mayor or the city council member or their governor um, and saying, put another crew out there. You have to save my house. You can't let my house burn. How come they can't stop this fire? And uh, there are times when fire cannot be stopped. In fact, if you think about it, fire is really the only force of nature that we still think that we can fight. And we have had incredible success fighting fire and stopping fire in the wild over uh, the decades that we've been doing that. But when you have a combination of homes that are built on the edge of forests, and you have forests that have for decades not been properly managed, haven't been thinned as they should have, um, haven't been uh, fires that burned there were not sort of uh, didn't burn long enough to sort of uh, clean up the forest floor, then what you have is this sort of perfect storm. And when you put another crew out there to save somebody's home, what you're doing essentially is putting the lives of these young men and women at risk. So the decisions that people have to make uh, or the thought they should have is, what is more important? Is it to save a house or is it to preserve the lives of these uh, young people who are fighting these fires out there? And there are times that these decisions have to be made and that's how we have to think about them. Mm -hmm. What part did the crew and its leadership play in the loss of the 19? Ultimately, the crew agreed uh, with the decision to go down the, 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 the ridge where they were into a canyon that the fire had not yet burned, and it was full of vegetation. A, a canyon works, and a, and a wildfire works like a chimney. You know, it, it pulls the fire out uh, up, and um, so it sort of funnels the fire. And... Uh, Obviously, we don't know what thought process they went through to make that decision to go down from an area the fire had already burned, which is where they were, an area that's known as the black, um, into this part that the fire had not burned. But uh, ultimately, they agreed to it, and they went down and they and they did it. So you can say it's their fault, but but is it really? a matter of blame that we should be focusing on. Mm. I don't think anyone who fights fires, whether it be fires in the wild or in the cities, um, will ever make a decision that's predicated on the possibility of death. They will never say, I'm going to do this, and maybe I can make it. Maybe we can make it. Maybe we won't, but let's try. Um, when they make decisions, they're difficult, tough decisions, but they are always um, based in what they think 
is the best decision for them at that moment in time. There was a town down there, the town of Yarnell, that fire was going its way. And it's the belief of any of everyone who knew this crew well that they wanted to make themselves useful and reposition themselves. So once the fire hit there, they could be helpful instead of sort of isolating themselves and staying where they were and let this fire kind of blow between them and the town and uh, and kind of separate them completely from any type of firefighting operation uh, at that moment that would be of great need as, as it turned out to be greater even than anybody imagined. I want to say, um, just for some grounding in Colorado history, there were nine members of a hotshot crew killed on Colorado's Storm King Mountain in 1994. That was known as the South Canyon Fire. It was near Glenwood Springs. Mm -hmm. National Geographic wrote about that and uh, says, quote, This fire made it more acceptable for firefighters to speak up or even decline assignments they consider too dangerous. Uh, So that may have been the effect of that Storm King Mountain fire in 94. Before we go, I want to dig into the pay that hotshots receive. It differed in in the case of the 19 from man to man, and and so did their death benefits, by the way. Right. This was the only municipally based hotshot crew. Their employer was the city of Prescott, Arizona. Um, Did the city take good care of these men in life and their families in death? The short answer is no. Uh, and the reason is that in life, uh, this crew was constituted in 2008. And as everybody, you know, who's a homeowner remembers, uh, a couple of years after that, we had this uh, very serious uh, crisis in the housing market. And it, it hit Arizona particularly hard because the state of Arizona has relied so much on the real estate uh, construction business to make its money. And so the city of Prescott, as many other cities in the state, struggled mightily to pay its bills. And one of the ways that it found was to cut uh, from various city agencies, and one of them was the fire department. And uh, at that point, they became uh, almost determined to, I mean, it, it was almost as if their goal was to do away with the crew. Uh, even though the crew, uh, the Granite Mountain Hotshots, got a lot of the money that they spent back, most of the money. In fact, some people argue that they broke even or even made money for the city because oh. they were reimbursed every time they fought fire for the Forest Service or any other agency. They were paid back for the hours that they worked. So um, the crew... As any hotshot crew across the country, be it federal or local, um, it's made up of some full-time employees and some seasonal employees. Grand Amount has six full-time employees, and of the 19, 13 were were seasonal. Uh, The rookies made $12.09 an hour, but they didn't qualify for the type of uh, pension, retirement, uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, death benefits that um, uh, the urban firefighters were under the city um, of Prescott uh, Fire Department qualified for or the full-time members of the crew. And that created a huge division and a major schism in town where um, some people came out in full support for benefits for everybody. And others started turning to the families and saying, you know, you already got a lot of donations. What else do you want? What else do you need? Why do you need more money? And it became a battle about money when it shouldn't be. It should be just a battle about doing it right by people who accepted a great risk to do a public service. And um, 
Um, you know, it, it ended up in the courts. Uh, some of the part, um, seasonal families, um, sued and, uh, ended up have been granted the uh, same benefits as the full-time members of the crew, but they in, each individually had to bring a case to court. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Fernanda Santos is Phoenix Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Her book, now out in paperback, is called The Fireline, the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. It's about the deaths of 19 wildland firefighters in Arizona four years ago. Read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to Michael Hughes, John Zuko, Anthony Cotton, Michelle Fulcher, and Rachel Estabrook. Our theme music was written by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.